This morning, our sermon text is from Genesis 4, and we have three readings as we do every Sunday, which all illuminate and expound upon the meaning of our sermon text. First, from Genesis 3. This is important background. In Genesis 4, Abel and Cain will make sacrifice and offering to the Lord, and we understand in Genesis 3 the reason for that sacrifice and offering. It is because of the sin and fall of humanity. All humanity stands under the judgment of God and the sentence of death, and so blood must be spilled for them to live. And indeed, God is the one who first sacrifices as he makes clothing of animal skins to send Adam and Eve out into the world, not naked, not covered by fig leaves, but clothed with the skin of animals who have died in their place. Listen now to God's word from Genesis 3. This is after the fall of humanity. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, that is Adam and Eve heard, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garment of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our New Test, or I'm sorry, our second reading from the Old Testament this morning, we find. In Leviticus 1, verses 1 to 9, the Lord setting up the worship as his people, Israel. 
And the very first thing that the Lord does is he instructs his people that when they come into his presence to bring a burnt offering, they must bring an animal that will be slain in their place. They must, as the worshiper, place their hands on that animal. They must accept that animal as their substitute. And that animal must be put to death if they are to be in relationship to God. For they, like Adam, like Eve, like Cain, like Abel, live under God's just sentence of death because of their sin. Listen now again to God's word. The Lord, that is Yahweh, called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When one of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement, to make covering for him. Then he, that is the worshiper, shall kill the bull before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you now to join me in standing for our gospel reading this morning. The gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Here we see the culmination, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, as John the Baptist, the prophet, says when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word once more. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's respond now to God's word by confessing our faith in communion and in unity with the church all throughout the ages and around the globe today. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. seated. Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 7. The text is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to reference it there. I invite you now to listen once more to God's holy and inerrant word. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Or literally, if you do well, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Thus far, the reading of God's word 
It is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have written all the scriptures for our learning. And I pray now that by your Spirit we might read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might grow in grace and wisdom, and more and more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. In order to rightly understand and interpret our scripture text this morning, we have to go back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Remember, actually before Genesis 3, in Genesis 2, when God set Adam in the Garden of Eden, he gave him the charge to work it and to keep it. And in his love and his generosity, God, who had made all things good, God then gave freely of the garden to Adam to eat of it. He said, you can have all the trees of the garden. They're all given to you to eat and be satisfied, God says, all but one. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God warned Adam not to eat of that tree, for he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then, in the next chapter, Genesis 3, we find what takes place next. The serpent comes into the garden, which never should have happened in the first place if Adam was guarding and keeping the garden as he should have been. And then Adam fails to protect his bride. He stands by and watches and allows her to be deceived by the serpent as the serpent questions God's word. And then in a perverted test, real-time test of God's word, whether God spoke the truth, Adam lets Eve go first, so to speak, in eating of the fruit of the tree. And he watches to see what will happen to her after she ingests the forbidden food. Eve eats, and nothing seems to happen. She does not seem to die. Adam observes this, and he says, well, perhaps God wasn't serious. Perhaps God was keeping me from something good, something enjoyable, by his apparently false warning about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam takes the fruit from Eve's hand, and he commits high-handed sin against God. Not a sin of wandering, not a sin of weakness, but high-handed sin against God by eating it as well. And Genesis 3 interestingly tells us it is only in that moment, only after Eve and then Adam have both eaten, that the effect of their sin begins to be felt. Genesis 3 tells us then, that is after Adam eats, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As it turned out, God had been serious. He had been telling the truth when he promised Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. But God's just sentence of death for Adam and Eve had a layered meaning. Certainly, on the one hand, their sin meant that they would one day experience physical death. As God told Adam that very same day, by the sweat of your face, 
you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, out of the ground, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And they would also experience a spiritual death. For later that very same day, God would drive Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And he would place a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden so that they could not come back, so they could not come and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. But in the midst of God's justice and his judgment, in the midst of his rightly handing down the sentence of death to Adam and Eve, God's kindness was also on display here in Genesis 3. He promises before he gets to any of the curses for the man or the woman, he promises that the seed of the woman would one day bruise and crush the serpent's head. And before he sends Adam and Eve out into the world, away from his presence in the garden, first he dresses themselves in clothes that were much, much better than fig leaves. We shouldn't leap over this verse. It's there for a reason. It's an important verse. Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Beloved, there is such tenderness and grace from God in this one brief verse. Adam and Eve, in their sin, had already tried to do something about their shame, right? They had already made for themselves loincloths out of fig leaves, out of plants, out of the garden. I mean, I mean, that's an incredible picture of humanity's attempt to deal with shame and sin on their own strength, their own merits apart from God, right? We can sort of cover things up. We can kind of pretend that our shame has been taken care of, but in the end, loincloths made of fig leaves are the best we can do on our own. And they don't cover much, and they don't last very long. But God, in his kindness, gives us something much better than fig leaves to cover us in our nakedness. God made new garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve, and he personally clothed them. I love that. He clothed them with these garments. He he put them on the man and the woman so that their nakedness and their shame would be covered before he sent them out into the world. And of course, in order for God to do this, in order for God to make garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve, an animal or animals had to die. Right there in the garden, on the same day that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, he taught them about substitutionary atonement. He taught them about this theological idea that would be unpacked all throughout the rest of the scriptures. Adam and Eve watched him do it. They saw the animal die in their place. And they learned on that day about what would be required for them to live at peace with God. Because of their sin, they would live now under God's just and righteous sentence of death. But because of God's grace and kindness, he would allow another, he would designate another to die in their place. Beloved, this is what it means to live with wisdom in the world. 
to accept and submit to this reality as it is revealed to us in the scriptures, to realize that what is true for Adam and Eve is true also for us, to humbly acknowledge that we also stand guilty before God, that we too are under a just sentence of death because of their sin and because of ours, to accept that, yes, one day every one of us will die, All of us. And no matter what form that death takes, whether we're given 100 years of relative health and prosperity and all of those things, or if our life is short and our span of years is much, much briefer, our death, whenever it comes, will be absolutely just. Completely just. Because we are sinners against God but also to realize and cling to this truth in faith that God has appointed a way of pardon and forgiveness. He has appointed that another might die for us in our place, that we can be sure that though we die, one day we will live again. You see, all of this is in the background of our passage this morning in Genesis 4. It's crucial to understand what's taking place in these offerings that Cain makes and Abel makes. Adam and Eve would have taught their sons of these things, of what had taken place in the garden, how they had sinned against God and how God had dealt with their sin. And in that light, the choices that Cain and Abel both make in this passage are significant. Cain was a worker of the ground and he offers to the Lord the fruit of that work. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. He should have done that. But here's the problem. He does so without covering himself and his tithe, his offering, with the death of an animal. No, Cain skips that part. He merely gives the Lord of the fruit of his work, the plants of the earth, vegetation that he's grown from the ground. Interestingly, the same material that Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with in the fig leaves. In effect, what Cain is doing here is rejecting God's sentence of death. By his actions, he is communicating he doesn't believe that someone should have to die in his place in order for him to offer his tithe and his offering and himself to God. Essentially, Cain is refusing to acknowledge his sin. And in his pride, he is acting as though he is acceptable to God without blood being spilled in his place. And in this way, Cain becomes one picture, or rather a picture of one kind of way that human beings are capable of living in relationship to God. This is the way of the wicked, the way of pride, the way of folly, the way of hubris. And the consequences of this path are traced throughout the rest of Genesis 4, and indeed throughout the rest of all of the scriptures. In contrast, Abel, whose name means vapor, interestingly, Abel listens to his parents' story of what has taken place in the garden. He wisely accepts that he, like them, stands under God's just sentence of death. And as Genesis 4, verse 4 tells us, Abel offers God of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, the only way that Abel could do this, the only way he could offer the fat portions of the firstborn of his lambs was by putting those lambs to death. 
Abel knew that because of his sin, as well as the sin of his parents, he could not come into God's presence uh, just on his own. He could not offer his tithe. He could not offer himself without blood being spilled. And so he humbly kills the firstborn lambs of his flock, knowing that these lambs are dying in his place, that these lambs are, in a sense, bearing the judgment that he deserves. And, And so we see here at the very beginning of the scriptures, the whole plan of God's redemption here in seed form, right? As we we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning from Leviticus, this is the same kind of idea, the same principle that would lead God to instruct Israel to bring an animal when they came to worship him, right? The very first thing that happens in Leviticus is God says, as he's setting up the worship of the people, first you have to bring an animal before you do anything else. And then you have to put your hands on that animal, Right, it's interesting how the, the, the text specifies that. The, the worshiper has to actually put his hands on the animal. He has to impute his sins to the animal. He has to, to be joined with the animal. He has to understand that this animal is him in some sense now. And then the worshiper, not the priest, the worshiper actually has to take the knife and kill the animal and watch it die in his place. And then only after that had happened would the priest get involved and put the blood on the altar, and all the other things. And all of these principles, all of these themes, of course, would find their fulfillment in the incarnation of the Son of God. Because in Jesus, in God's kindness, in God's love, in his relentless love for the human race, and his desire to be fully reconciled to his people forever, God himself would restore the way back to the tree of life by taking on flesh. And in that flesh, he would become, God would become the animal that would die for the people. God would become the lamb. And so John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, would rightly describe Jesus as he saw him coming there by the banks of the Jordan. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see what he's doing? He's going back to Genesis 4. He's talking about Abel and the offering that he brought. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this, these two ways of relating to God, the way of folly and pride and the way of humility and wisdom and faith are disclosed here in these words. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, at this point, you might expect the narrative to go a little further with Abel. You might expect that Genesis 4 would now take some time to extol the the virtues and the blessings of living humbly and wisely before God. But fascinatingly, that's not what we see at all in terms of what takes place next in the text. No, the, the mercy of God is greater than that, friends. God kindness comes after even those who are proud, even those who reject his grace, The next verses of Genesis 4 have not to do with the conversation between God and Abel, but a conversation between God and Cain. God pursuing Cain, God inviting Cain to turn even now from his hardness of heart and to embrace repentance. And thanks be to God that this is what we read here in Genesis 4. For all of us need this kind of mercy, this kind of grace in our pride, in our hard-heartedness. We need the Lord to do this, to come after us. 
This is what we read in Genesis 4, verses 5 to 7. So Cain was very angry, we read, and his face fell. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Cain, he comes to him, he speaks to him. He doesn't just burn up Cain, right, with lightning from heaven. No, he comes to him, he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Or literally in the Hebrew, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin has almost become that animal in the garden, right? That snake, that serpent. This section of the text begins with Cain's anger. He was very angry, we are told, presumably because his offering was not accepted by God, and Abel's, in contrast, was. But in his anger, in his defensiveness, in his pride, the Lord is drawing near to Cain, and he asks him this very simple, straightforward, insightful question, why are you angry? He says to Cain, why are you angry? And I'm convinced that the Lord asked this question not to condemn Cain, but rather he asked this question because he loves this proud and stubborn man. He loves him. And he wants Cain to consider what it is that he's doing. He desires for Cain to turn away from the folly of his pride. So why is Cain angry? Yes, in some sense, in a superficial sense, Cain is angry because Abel's offering was accepted and his wasn't. But what's the deeper reason? It seems to me that the root of Cain's anger is that he just doesn't like this arrangement. Right? The solution for Cain's problem is not complicated. The way of repentance is standing completely open to him. All he has to do is go to his brother and ask him for a lamb. Ask Abel to give him a lamb so that he can sacrifice it or, or offer to trade Abel you know, some, some of the fruit of the ground in exchange for a lamb. And then he has to take that lamb as a sacrifice before the Lord and he has to kill it in his place. It's not complicated. Adam and Eve had instructed him. He's seen Abel do it and be accepted. It seems that Cain just does not like living under the sentence of death. He doesn't want to acknowledge that an animal should die in his place. And so instead of accepting God's plan to clothe himself in the skins of an animal, Cain desires to cover his nakedness on his own terms, with fig leaves, with the fruit of the ground. Cain wants to relate to God on his own terms. He wants God to accept him just as he is. And so the Lord comes to him and he asks him to be honest about what's actually happening in his heart. God asks Cain to examine his motives, examine what's going on. He says to him, Cain, why are you angry? Because here's the key point. Ultimately, Cain is not angry with Abel, although he will scapegoat Abel in the next verse, chapter verse 8. Really, his anger is with God. And what the Lord is trying gently to point out to Cain is he has no right to be angry with God. There's no possible reason for it. There's no justification. God has not dealt with him unjustly. 
Quite the opposite. Actually, God has been kind and gracious, but in order to accept the mercy of God, Cain must bow his head and bend his knee to God's sovereignty. He must acknowledge his sin. He must acknowledge that he has nothing in the end to be angry about. And God is coming to Cain in the midst of his anger because he knows that if Cain does not repent, if he does not turn away from this path, then destruction lies before him. His anger will consume him. Indeed, he says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. And if you are not careful, it will destroy you. And so he says to Cain, why are you angry? I want us to sit with this question for a few minutes as we close this morning, beloved. Why are you angry? That's the question God asks Cain. I think he puts that question to us as well. And if we're honest, many of us are angry. And so I ask you this morning, why are you angry, beloved? What is the cause of your anger? Some of us are angry because the world isn't going the way that we think it should. Right? There are people in authority over us that we are not happy about. And we're angry about it. Whether that's the president or the governor or our boss at work or a teacher at school, there's someone over us who does not seem like they should be. And we're mad. Some of us are angry because our lives aren't going the way that we think they should have gone. Right? We made a deal somewhere with somebody, and it's not working out. Right? We've kept up our end of the bargain, but whoever that other person is, God probably, isn't keeping up their end. We're not paid enough for what we do, or we don't get to do the work that we think we should, or we don't have the calling that we think we should possess. And we're angry about it. Or we're angry because other people seem to have it easier than much easier than we do. Other people are getting the things that they want. Well, we're not. And that makes us angry. Some of us are angry with our parents. We're angry because they don't understand us. They don't really love us. They've let us down in different ways. Some of us are angry with our children. We're angry because they don't seem to appreciate all that we've done on their behalf. All of our sacrifices over the years. We're angry because they don't give us the recognition that we think we deserve. Some of us are angry at our spouses or our friends or our siblings. And in all those places and others I haven't even begun to mention, the Lord, here's what I want you to see, beloved, the Lord draws near to you in that place, in the midst of your anger, and he asks you the same question. He says, why are you angry? Why? So why, beloved, why are you angry? I think it's an important question for us to consider because very often our anger reveals the actual situation of our hearts. And if we are willing, by God's grace and help, to explore our anger past the superficial things that upset us, right? If we go down to the bottom of things, we'll find that our anger is a kind of mirror for our hearts, that our anger is actually revealing parts of ourselves that we'd rather hide, parts of ourselves that we don't want others to see, but it comes out because we can't help it in our anger. 
And I suspect that at the root of most of our anger, if we're honest, is not righteousness, but pride. Pride because we think we deserve to have better than we have. Pride because we don't think we really ought to be living under God's just sentence of death. It's not fair. It's not right. Pride because we think that if we were in charge instead of God, we could do a much better job of ordering our lives the way they should go. Or even just ordering the world in general. But beloved, what I want you to see is that God desires for you to be honest about your anger. And he can take it. You can tell him. This is, an, this is a real question. God asks Cain. And there's no record in the text that Cain answers it. And that is a mistake. Because God wants him to. God wants him just to tell me. What are you angry? Just, just say it out loud, Cain. What are you mad about? Beloved, what I want you to see is that when we're finally ready to be willing to be honest about what it is that we're actually angry about, God is there, right there in that moment, and he is calling us to surrender that anger, to let it go. In the midst of our anger, God offers his grace. He offers to clothe us in our nakedness, cover our shame. He offers to die in our place. But we have to bow the head and bend the knee. And we have to acknowledge that in the end, we have nothing to be angry about. Not a single thing. Because God is just. And God is good. And he always has been. From the very beginning until now. Beloved, this is what is offered to you in the gospel. You can trade your anger for peace and contentment and joy. But you have to let it go. You have to relinquish it. You have to give it up. It has to be a trade. You can't keep your anger and also have those other things. You have to give up the anger. Because giving up the anger means confessing that God is just and God is good. In all of his works, in all of his ways, not just in human history, but in my life, in the details of my experience, this exchange, beloved, is what was offered to Cain. And it's offered to you today as well. And my prayer is that we would be those who have faith and are wise. And by the Spirit, learn through the grace of God to say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him, to the living God, be glory forever. Amen. Beloved, this is the path of wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.